the great God of heaven and earth who made you and who loves you has placed you right where you are right now so that you would know him. Do you know where you are right now? Um, that might seem a rhetorical question. It's a little bit rhetorical. But I was, uh, had a, the distinct experience earlier in the service when we had our eyes closed and there wasn't any noise. So I know where I am right now because you all, by seeing you, I know I'm here. You placed me here, this wonderful sanctuary. I know where I am. I hear the music. But when my eyes were shut and I didn't hear anything, I was actually not quite sure where I was for a minute because of my life being so scrambled lately. We've, in the last month, we've moved one daughter home from Durham, North Carolina, temporarily as she finished college. And then yesterday, moved her, Hunter, to her new life in New York City, and that's where she and my wife Troy are today. So Troy sends her greetings, but she's helping Hunter get settled in. Last week, we moved our other daughter into her summer apartment in Boston from her place in New York City to Boston. Um, this, in the middle of this week, some of you helped us do our partial move from our home in West Hartford here to New Haven with a new, the final move being later next month, or later, later this month, now that we're in July. So where am I right now? I have to keep my eyes open, and you have to talk to me so that I know where I am. Otherwise, I get dislocated. Um, our passage today has this remarkable promise right in the middle of it. And it contains a thousand remarkable promises. But right in the middle of it is this wonderful promise that the God who made everything, and who loves you, has placed you right where you are in this exact time period, in this exact setting. Not for meaningless reasons or random reasons, but precisely so that you would know him. Precisely so that you could seek him and find him. Please pray with me now as we let the Lord teach us and, and, and uh, fill our hearts with the truth of his word as we heard it read for us already. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are indeed a great God who has made all things. Thank you that we have been able to greet you this morning with praise and been able to go down low before you and acknowledge the, the, the sins of our lives and been restored in Christ and forgiven. And thank you that you desire to continue to renew us. Help us all to know you and to never rest uh, with this passive knowledge of you, but that we would actively seek to know you all of our days. Bless us now with ears to hear and, and eyes even to see. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I may make this a habit, I didn't necessarily intend to, but my last sermon here, I began with a short reading from Walker Percy. This is another short reading from Walker Percy. This is his book. Uh, He was an American novelist and and, uh, essayist um, who died in the mid-80s, 1980s, um, and a remarkably wise uh, philosopher, theologian, as it were, and the winner of the National Book Award, one of our greatest novelists and writers. Here's his book. Walker Percy, The Last Self-Help Book, Lost in the Cosmos. The Last Self-Help Book, Lost in the Cosmos. 
But uh, the ins- in, inside the front cover, it says, Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help book. And then it gives these alternate titles for the book. So I'll read several of these alternate titles. Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help book. Or, The Strange Case of the Self, Yourself, the Ghost Which Haunts the Cosmos. Or, How You Can Survive in the Cosmos, About Which You Know More and More While Knowing Less and Less About Yourself. This despite 10,000 self-help books, 100,000 psychotherapists, and 100 million fundamentalist Christians. Or, why it is that of all the billions and billions of strange objects in the cosmos, novas, quasars, pulsars, black holes, you are beyond doubt the strangest. Or, why it is possible to learn more in 10 minutes about the Crab Nebula in Taurus, which is 6,000 light years away, than you presently know about yourself, even though you've been stuck with yourself all your life. That's Walker Percy going up to Mars Hill, to the Areopagus. That's Paul in our passage in Acts 17, in the great city of Athens. And Walker Percy entering into that same milieu. Here we are in one of the... in um, inarguably great cities of the modern world, New Haven, Connecticut. It's just from this angle right here, you all don't have this, but I can see right here, I can see the Peabody Museum across the street, one of the great museums of the world, and this incredible brand, this old, that's an old kind of cathedral-like building, and this incredibly beautiful new building, the Yale School of Management. Right from this, where I'm looking right now, the old and the new, these brilliant uh, presentations of common grace to this world, this great city of Athens, as it were. Paul, though, put his finger on something as he wandered around the city. He noticed that they were very religious, but that they didn't know the real God. Walker Percy put his finger on the same thing, as it were, in respect to American modern contemporary American society, but he also put his finger on this. We walk all around, but we don't know ourselves. And of course, you know from the scriptures that that knowledge of God and knowledge of self are intricately tied to each other. In fact, you might remember, this is how one of our spiritual forefathers, John Calvin, began Calvin's, his institutes. He didn't call them Calvin's Institutes. We call them Calvin's Institutes. Uh, that'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? Anyway. He began his institutes by saying, there are two great forms of knowledge. Which one should I start with? Knowledge of God or knowledge of self? And then he essentially says, it kind of doesn't matter because if I begin with the one, it will lead to the other. If I begin with the other, it will lead to the one. You cannot know God without knowing yourself. You cannot know yourself without knowing God. And so what do we see from Paul's preaching in this passage? What do we see that he has for us here today? This great knowledge of God and knowledge of self that will help root and ground us. As we move through this passage, we will make note of, I'll make a few introductory remarks along the lines of Paul's remarkable strategy and lessons learned for how to engage in this world. 
But those will be merely introductory because what we want to do is get to the heart of what he actually says. Not so much his strategy and why he says what he says, but what he actually says. This glorious good news about the God who is. And so we'll get there for the bulk of our sermon. But first, just a few introductory remarks. If you're familiar with the Apostle Paul and his, and his mission, and if you're familiar with the book of Acts and maybe even Acts chapter 17 in particular, it's really excellent that it, it, the way it's paired in this chapter, that Acts 17 begins with an account of Paul, and we didn't read it because it, it precedes our, the text we read, but it begins with an account of Paul entering into the synagogue of the Jews. He himself was a Jew. And Acts says, as Paul went in, as was his custom, and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah, the Christ, to suffer and to rise from the dead. And and so the beginning of the book of Acts, we see how Paul engages with his fellow Jews. He reasons from the Scriptures. He enters into their place, the synagogue, on the Sabbath day, it says, and he reasons from the Scriptures. He, in the, in the best sense of the word, exploits and uses as leverage his common ground. So now we see in our text this morning that in a very different setting, the great city of Athens, these uh, Greeks who were not Jewish, how he then engages with them. And notice that he doesn't actually reason from the Scriptures, as it were. He doesn't take the Old Testament Scriptures and prove from them the wonders of a a Messiah, all the promises fulfilled, but rather he takes what what they're familiar with, their own poets, their own idols, and he reasons from from that common ground. Well, We're going to return to this, but it begs a question, doesn't it? And sometimes we just take this for granted. But it begs the question, why? Why would Paul engage people at all, let alone two different groups of people? Why would he even do that instead of being indifferent towards them? Um... Maybe this is saying too much, but I I find it possible to be indifferent way too often towards my own wife and children, let alone my neighbors, (laughs) let alone people I don't know much about. So we just take it for granted that here's Paul like engaging and not being indifferent, but let's not take that for granted. We're going to circle back to what was it that moved him out so that he actually cared, and then in engaging, did so so respectfully, with such compassion and with such kindness for various types of people. Well, this to give it all away, now we're going to get to the bulk of the sermon. It was his very knowledge of God that changed everything for him, and the knowledge of God changes us. So now let's get to what he actually then says about who this great God is. 
every recent poll in my lifetime that um, asks Americans about our religious views and our religious practices, the percentage of people that believe in God, some conception of God, has always been over 95%. This is what Paul encountered here in Athens. It's its own unique pursuit of those that don't even believe in the existence of any sort of higher power. There's ways to approach that, but that's not what needs to happen here in this passage and with the majority of those that we engage with. Paul notices right away that they are very, very religious, but they've built all around town all these different altars to various gods who some of whom would be mutually exclusive. One could not exist if the other is existing. But then to top it all off, they have this, own, this particular idol that they've built an altar to the unknown God. So here's the very first thing Christ wants us to know about God as he sent his apostle Paul into this world. The first thing in this passage is that the God who is desires to be known. He is not content to remain an unknown God. He is not content. He is not indifferent towards people not knowing him. He is the one that brought Saul to himself and sends him out now empowered in mission and has done so ever since with you and me, with his church. God is not indifferent to the fact that people don't know him. The God who created all that there is, he may indeed be known. In fact, he desires to be known. He longs to be known. He created you to know him. In the takeaway for the sermon, you can see I, I just cribbed this wonderful little summary from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. And uh, you can turn the page after the sermon text, and here's the takeaway. Here's what J.I. Packer says. What were we made for? We were made to know God. What aim should we set for ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. What, of all the states God ever sees man in, gives God most pleasure? knowledge of himself. This is the great God who had created all things. He not only may be known, he desires to be known and has placed you right where you are at the exact time precisely so that you would know him. There's the, there's the, the promise right there. In verse 26, that the God who made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, he has determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of our dwelling place. That's a fancy way of saying he's he's determined the time and place. 
He has placed you uniquely in your setting so that, see what the rest of the verse says, so that you should seek God. Now, Paul is addressing those that don't claim to know the God of the Scriptures. And so he then says to them, there is hope that you would feel your way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for it's in him that we live and move and have our being. But addressing the church of Jesus Christ, it's more than just there's hope that you might find him. For those in the church of Jesus Christ, our seeking has been answered. We have found Christ. We have found God. When we see the, the wonder of this promise, we just it calls us just to slow down for just a bit. And we slow down and we and we remember. If God has had me born in the exact time period that he had me born. So I, I'm, uh, I was born in 1964. Sometimes I wish I was born in 1924, just so I'd be near the end and have running my race. Other times I wish I was born in 2004, so that I'd have a whole life ahead of me. But I was born in 1964. And when I can slow down and consider my life, all the different places I've lived at the exact time periods in, I, in which I've, where I've lived them, this passage is promising that I had access to the knowledge of God in unique ways because of that. You learn more about the city, when you live in the city. You learn more about the country when you live in the country. It's a very simple, com- simple uh, comparison here. But city dwellers generally have access to the knowledge of God in some unique ways that aren't as accessible to those that live out in the country where there aren't people. We can give all the details of that, but... Very briefly, if you live out in the country, you have direct access to the knowledge of God by seeing the stars every night. You just don't in the city. Light pollution keeps you from seeing the stars. But out in the country, you do. But in the city, meanwhile, you have direct access to the knowledge of God by seeing the sheer uniqueness of his created glory in every type of human being around you on the streets. Whereas when you're more isolated out in the, in the country, you don't necessarily have direct access to that. And so there's all these different unique ways. So just, we can't do that here today, but here's the point is each of you can do this in your own lives. You can slow down, consider all the different times and places he's had you, and what about the access of God has deepened your knowledge of him because of you're 15, not 17. You're 15, not 13. Why do you have a unique angle on the true knowledge of God that the 17-year-old or the 13-year-old doesn't? And every one of us can answer, these, answer this question profoundly and continually for the rest of our life because this promise will never go away. 
God has never placed anyone in any time or place where they had no access to him. And he will never do that to you. And so he places you in, 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 in remarkably well, for remarkably well-suited reasons in the exact time and place where he has you. So that you would seek him and find him and know him. And here's, here's the second big point. This knowledge of God then changes everything. We've already touched on how it changes Paul. It makes him someone that instead of moving towards other people to get them thrown in prison, which was his previous lifestyle, he moves towards them to invite them to the knowledge of God. We've already seen how this knowledge of God changed Paul. But notice what he says to the Athenians about how this knowledge of God can change them, and so, of course, how it can change us and how it has changed us. First of all, we can, we can say a number of things from this passage, but let's point out what verse 30 says. That we have a great God of patience who the times of ignorance he's overlooked, but now, now that Christ has come, he commands all people everywhere to repent. He changes everything about our lives by making us people that live lifestyles of repentance. Kevin's already reminded us of this, and we've reminded ourselves of this, the fact that every single week in our worship service, every single week, we repent. It's built into the structure of biblical worship, that we praise him and then we go down low before him. This is, this is precisely because God commands people everywhere to repent. We live lifestyles of repentance now, and I'm, obviously I don't know all of your stories, but if you knew just a bit about mine, you would know what a dramatic change has come to my life. I lived the furthest thing from a lifestyle of repentance before coming to Christ. I uh, remember walking home from school one day in sixth grade, and I had just been named uh, like a um, vice uh, patrol leader of the, the uh, school's crossing guards. The, the, the kid, you know, crossing guards who got to wear those red belts, and I got to be the second in command, and I was walking home with my really good friend, Billy Ranselhoff, who was named the captain, so I was his right-hand man. And, and I was, you know, a smart student, really great at kickball. That, that, ha- that has lots of transferable skills in this life, by the way. Um, and now, now I'm made like vice chairman or whatever of the crossing guards. And I'm walking home with him. I literally said out loud, if everyone in the world were just more like me, this world would be awesome. I, I literally said that out loud. And it wasn't just like, it, like a blip of a moment. That was my like, self-awareness. That's who I thought of myself to be growing up. Like just, just multiply and clone me all over the place. And I, I can't tell you. I mean, it, to me, this is like earth-shatteringly dramatic. The fact that it that if you were to present that option to me now, I would die of a heart attack. I'd be terrified of me being multiplied more than just me. 
that's a lifestyle of repentance. Because in Christ I see every single week, there are just, I just have to go down love. The aspects of who I am that are just, just an epic fail. That are just should not be reduplicated in anybody's character anywhere. And so the knowledge of God changes a person. It fundamentally changes a person. Beginning with this idea of we live a lifestyle of repentance. You might even remember that when Martin Luther, uh, this moment that we look to as this dramatic moment kicking off the, the Reformation, where he nailed the 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg church, that the very first one, you might remember this, was he wrote, when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ commands us to repent, he meant for the whole of our lives to be one of repentance. I don't think that the other gods that the Athenians wrote idol, made idols to required that sort of lifestyle repentance. The other gods that I'm aware of that the other major world religions uh, worship require moments of repentance. Seasons, pilgrimages, but not a lifestyle where every single day we say, Lord, change me. I give you my heart afresh and anew. See, the knowledge of God changes everything. Two other central ways in which the knowledge of God changes us. Notice how Paul ends his message, his his sermon, as it were, to the Athenians in verse 31. That this great God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. He, of course, is referring to Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the second way the knowledge of God changes us is the true knowledge of God comes with an assurance of this good news in Christ. The knowledge of God does not then leave us guessing as to what might happen to us ultimately on Judgment Day. If you are still left guessing as to what might happen to you ultimately on Judgment Day, you haven't yet embraced the true knowledge of who Jesus Christ really is. The Savior raised from the dead, because when you see the logic of that, which, by the way, Paul doesn't get into in this sermon, but he does everywhere else, and the Scriptures do as well, what is the logic of Christ being raised from the dead? How does that give you assurance on Judgment Day? The logic, of course, is this, that Christ took the death that we deserved on Judgment Day and went down low with it, But if he had stayed down low, we'd have no assurance that that did much of anything. But then what happened is he was raised from the dead, proving that our death is completely taken care of now. Our condemnation was buried with him in the grave. His being raised from the dead provides the assurance that on judgment day we are greeting our Savior. The true knowledge of God changes us in that way. We're not left guessing. Well, what do we mean by knowing God? What do we mean by the true knowledge of God? There's nothing creative about my uh, theology or my understanding of the scriptures. I just go with 
what the, the wise history of the church has always taught. And so we know that theologians have summarized the knowledge of God under these three great headings that we distinguish but we never divide them. That the true knowledge of God always includes noticia, ascensus, and fiducia. Latin, those are the three Latin words I know. I think maybe, I, I don't know, I might, I might know a fourth or fifth, but anyway. The true knowledge, the true faith that, that knows God truly has noticia, namely an, an, an adequate knowledge of the facts of who this God is and what Christ has done. We haven't yet embraced the true Christ till we know the true, the true Christ, what the scriptures teach about him. So noticia. And here's Paul explaining reality, explaining truth, true uh, the true theology of who God is. But then there's a census, which is the giving of assent, that your will assents to the goodness of this knowledge. So it's one thing to say, God created all things and has appointed judgment day for him, for, for all men. And I'm indifferent to that. It's another thing to say, God has created all things and appointed a judgment day for all men, and I receive that as good news. And so this true knowledge of God doesn't just consist of the, the facts, but also giving the assent. And then finally, of course, fiducia, the word for the, the giving of one's whole self, one's whole person over. That same sixth grade boy that was walk, walked home from Bethesda Elementary School, you know, how many years ago that was, and thought just reduplicate Jeff Hutchinson and the world would be a great place. That young man did have adequate noticia of Christ, raised in, the, in a church. I knew Christ, and I thought it was good, not bad. I was for it. I was for the truths of Christ, not indifferent or against them. But I certainly had not given my heart over that third aspect of the true knowledge of God, of true saving faith, fiducia, a personal trust in this Savior. There had been um, a number of us, of course, who are, who are married wear, wear wet wedding rings as a, as a distinction to, to remind us of this moment when lives were joined together and we one gives themselves to the other. And this is not God's calling for all people, but for those that he has God, God has called people to marriage, it, it would be monstrous, wouldn't it, for the marriage to include no promises whatsoever. No, no promises whatsoever. Um, instead, these promises of I'm giving myself over to you, and you're giving yourself to me. That's something of an illustration of fiducia, that third aspect of the true knowledge of God. And so this knowledge of God changes everything. We begin to live life's house of repentance. We have this assurance that Christ really is now the Savior. And then one last way in which the true knowledge of God changes everything, and this is what we've said earlier in the sermon, is it changes our 
attitudes towards the people around us. Really, it's, it's just sort of hard to say it out loud, but, but honestly, like that attitude that was in my heart as a sixth grader and is still there in seed form is that, that sixth grader really did believe that he should be standing above you today, not merely as a visual aid so that you could see a relatively short person, but because of superiority. Like that's, and, and what else was Paul's mindset when he was dragging people off to prison for worshiping Jesus? But this superiority, a judgment over towards. But here he doesn't do that at all. He comes alongside them, pointing them to the good news of Christ. And so the true knowledge of God changes one's attitudes towards everyone. There's a very simple um, truth woven into the very fabric of reality, which uh, John writes about it in 1 John. Several ways he says, he says this, but in one of, the, one of the places, 1 John 4 Verse 19, this, this truth woven into the fabric of reality. Well, that's a wonderful truth as well. <laughs> Sorry, that, that's not the one I was looking for. That, that's <laughs> it's even more central in many ways. We, we love because he first loved us. Um. Maybe it's verse 7. Whatever. You'll find it in there. It's in there somewhere. <laughs> My, I, it's simply the, the one who says he loves God but hates his neighbor is a liar. That's in there. Oh, that's cool. By the way, my former church um, in West Hartford, we, we rented out the West Hartford Town Hall every week. And so half the Saturdays of the year, the town hall had been rented out for some sort of event involving balloons. And so I'm very used to, like, balloons just descending during my sermons <laughs> behind me. It's like, no big deal. Happens all the time. Here's this fundamental truth John gets at. The whole scriptures teach it. And common sense reveals it as well. Which is, one's love for God has to be translated and communicated in love towards others. Otherwise, it's all just a big sham and a lie. And so... Paul's knowledge of God has fundamentally changed him. Your knowledge of God has fundamentally changed you. Your attitude towards others is now humane and Christian if you know Christ. If you have common grace from God, it's it's humane. But these Athenians, it was up in the air whether they were going to treat each other with respect because the various gods that they're worshiping didn't necessarily require that of their followers. But the Christian God requires that we believe in the fundamental dignity of every human being. This passage is one of many that prove it. Because right here, Paul had said already that God who made, the God who made the world and everything in it, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. That there is this fundamental dignity to every human being 
in every time and place, no matter what that human being looks like or what, what language they speak, what age they are, what gender, there is this fundamental dignity to all of our fellow humans. And Paul is treating both Jews and Gentiles this way. And we are doing that as well more and more as we're letting the true knowledge of God change and transform the way we treat others. We know the tendency, don't we, that the minute you forget that the person you're dealing with, whether it's the person in in traffic that's cut you off and honked their horn at you and then chain smokes, or you group lump people together into those people on the left or those people on the right or the media, we know what happens, right? That the moment you begin to do that, you depersonalize a person. The person ceases to be an individual created in the image of God, and now they're depersonalized. Then the next half step after that is what? They're no longer merely depersonalized. Now they're dehumanized. They're not even a human to you anymore. And then the next thing after that, if you're not careful, is now they're demonized. Not only are they not human, but they deserve destruction. That's what happens the moment you don't let the knowledge of God change everything in your heart, including remembering that every human being has a fundamental dignity created in the image of God. So, this three big things we're trying to say this morning. The first one we've said, the second one we've just said, and now here's the third one. The first one, once again, that the God who is, he may be known, in fact, he desires to be known. Secondly, this great God has placed you where you are so that you would seek him and know him. And this knowing, this knowledge of God changes everything. And then finally, because here's, here's the wonderful, uh, excellent challenge for me this week. Here's the third point. That this knowing God, this seeking for God, as verse 27 says, he has placed us where he's placed us so that we would seek him. Here's the final point. That this knowing God, this seeking for God, is a lifelong adventure. It's a lifelong adventure. This, by the way, is what, if you, was what Walker Percy was getting at. If you, know, if you read enough Walker Percy, you know what he was getting at with that sardonic little, little um, um, jibe at 100 million fundamentalist Christians. He, he was getting at that sort of, not the mindset of those that have an orthodox faith in Jesus Christ, but he was getting at that mindset of the one who says, I found Jesus and I'm done looking. I, don't, I know everything I need to know about God now. I have got an exhaustive knowledge. I put my arms around God, and I know exactly how to predict everything he'll ever do, and I know his views on everything, and I'm going to spout them out. And so the seeking of God ends and comes full stop for, for, the, for, for some, some mindsets, but not the biblical mindset. This knowledge for God, this seeking for God, is a lifelong adventure. Some of you know that um, in the middle of all this moving around, um, so Tuesday, one of the Impact Week projects was helping us finish up our, our, our partial move to our new house in New Haven. 
And so that evening I had to drive the rental car, the rental truck back to West Hartford or Hartford. And I got stuck on I-84. This had never happened to me before, where they literally shut down the highway. There had been a fatality, a tragic thing. So I was stuck with the engine turned off for four hours. Four, that had never happened to me before. By the way, at the three-hour point, there were still a whole bunch of cars around me that still had their engines running. Like I, it'd been three hours, people. Come on, you know. It took me like ten minutes. I turned it off. Four hours, and right before my phone died, I was able to post this little Facebook thing, and I was just like, "I'm preaching on be here now, and I don't want to be here now. What's happening? Help me, you know. Crowdsource. Give me some." And and it was remarkable all the feedback I got from friends all over the place, Christian, non-Christian, men, women, boys, and and uh, adults, um, and. It was all just so helpful and encouraging. Of course, I couldn't read it until I got to my house later that night because my phone died. But summing up all that they said, um, very briefly, but, but they, were, they all said something to the effect of, we may not know the reason why he has you there now, but know that he has you there now. That's, uh, there was some version of that, that this four-hour interruption in your life is actually not an interruption, but a gift from God somehow. So look for how it is. And it took me probably, I don't know, 90 minutes of the four hours to get to that point emotionally. (laughs) It just seemed like a waste. There was no good reason for it at all. But then I think what began to turn the corner for me was I remembered this classic uh, phrase from Pascal's Ponce where he said, all of a man's miseries stem from his inability to sit in a room quietly by himself. All of a man's miseries stem from his inability to sit in a room quietly by himself. And so it began to turn for me, and I began to just receive that four hours as a gift, some sort of gift from a God of love who has decreed all things for his good pleasure. And so I began to see how stuck I can just be. It's like, I've already got adequate knowledge of God. I'm, I'm the one preaching this week. I've got adequate, like, what? No. This seeking of God is this lifelong adventure, and he's going to give you new experiences and new time periods. Tomorrow's going to be a different time period than today. We're all entering a new adventure tomorrow and next week and next year so that we'd keep seeking him. The great author C.S. Lewis has the, the most fabulous image of this that I can even conceive of, and it's, of course, that image of further up and further in. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where he envisions the new heavens and the new earth at the end of the Narnia tales, where the children come to this great, the new, the Narnia and this great garden, and they run through, and they run up waterfalls, and they get to the center of the beauty of it all, and there's another garden in the center. And they enter into that garden, and it's Narnia again. It's even London again, the city that they were familiar with, but a fresher, more beautiful, brighter colors version of it. And they run further up and further in another garden in the middle of that garden, and they open it, and it's the whole world again, but fresher and cleaner and truer once more. This is the Christian life, brothers and sisters. There is nothing static or boring about it. It's a dynamic life. Those that don't know God might keep from the knowledge of God precisely because they might think the entering into the Christian life, now I have to put a bullet through my brain. 
I have to die intellectually. I have to die emotionally and just become this static thing. The 100 million fundamentalist Christians that Walker Percy is referring to, and believe me, we believe in the fundamentals of Christianity. But you know what we're getting at here. But no, no, the Christian life, once entered in, is this dynamic adventure. Jack Miller, one of my professors, used to call the Christian life a joyride and a pitched battle. The knowledge of God, brothers and sisters, is this dynamic adventure that's both a joyride and a pitched battle. This God who created you desires to be known. He's invited you in through Christ, and now in Christ you have found him. You are in the new heavens, the new earth, and yet further up and further in. Let's keep moving forward and deeper in our knowledge of this glorious God. I didn't even spend the time I wanted to talking about, there's at least 16 different distinct doctrines of God in this short little sermon from Paul. There's so much to explore together about who this great God is. Let's rest, though, in the, in the knowledge he's already given us, and let's resolve to keep moving forward with him for, the, for his glory, for our greater good, and for the greater good of this world. Let's pray.